Several years ago, my family and I, I was young at the time, um, I can say that now that I'm getting gray hair. We were uh, hiking on Sunset Rock over in Lookout Mountain, and I saw what looked to me like the most fun activity you could ever imagine. There was a rope draped over the edge of the cliff, and people were hooked into the rope, and they went over the edge of the cliff, and it just looked like so much fun. How many of you have ever done that before? Far too few of you. Some of you need to try this. It's called rappelling, or some people, in some places they call it abseiling. So I thought that looked like a lot of fun. So I had been working, I saved some money, so I bought a rappelling rope, and I was at a boarding school down in Georgia, and so I took my rope and my harness and my rappelling gear there, and I was so excited to use it at the school. Little did the staff know what I was about to do, and they weren't very excited with the plans I had. But there was this large oak tree across the field, and I went down and I threw my rope over the top of it, and I climbed up in the tree and I hooked in, and I rappelled down. Wow, you can't imagine the fun. And I did it multiple times until Mr. Thomas, the school principal, noticed this young man sliding down a rope out of his, in his, uh, out of his window there, and I'm sure he immediately went to his cabinet, opened it up, pulled out the insurance booklet, and flipped to R, repelling. Repelling is forbidden on this campus. I'm sure of that because he came marching over there. What are you doing? Well, I'm just having some fun, sir. <laughs> you cannot do that on this campus. Oh, I was so disappointed. I had to put my rope away, and I couldn't do it there. So then I went back to where I'd seen them do it first, Sunset Rock. And um, it's a 90-foot cliff. It's beautiful. How many of you have ever been to Sunset Rock? Okay, more of you. Okay, everyone that raised their hand should go rappelling up there sometime. So while I was up there rappelling, something else caught my eye. I saw people doing the, the most fun activity you could ever imagine. Instead of sliding down a rope, they had a rope tied to them and they were climbing the rock. Wow! And if they fell, the rope would catch them. I mean, it was just amazing. So that intrigued me. So you know what I did? I'd been working, so I had a little bit of money. So I bought a climbing rope. They're different. A rappelling rope doesn't stretch because you don't want it to stretch. But a climbing rope, you want it to stretch because when you fall, if it doesn't, you can imagine what happens. Ugh. It's not good. So, you want to, so I got a rope that stretched. In fact, funny story, I have five daughters and they've always liked wearing you know, pink and yellow and that sort of thing. So as the only guy in the house, I refuse to wear pink. Draw the line, no pink. I mean, a man has to be a man. How can you be a man if you wear pink? Forgive, any, forgive any, you know, for me, if any of you that's wearing pink today that's a man, but you can repent and change your ways. <laughs> next week, no one. Actually, everyone's going to probably wear a pink tie next week. But anyway, I had this uh, pink rope. Uh, it was a little embarrassing, but anyway, I used it because I spent a lot of money for it. And uh, in those days when you ordered from the black and white catalog, you didn't know what color the rope was. Kids don't even here know what a catalog is, you know? It's not Google. All right, so I, I got this rope, and uh, so the, I started rock climbing, and I fell in love with rock climbing. My brother would rock climb, and so we would climb. We climbed all over the southeast, different areas. But one day, we were back at Sunset Rock. It's fairly close. Once you park, it's not too far down there, so it's a nice place to go fairly quickly. And so I, I remember it like it was yesterday. 
If you're on the main wall facing Sunset Rock, on the left-hand side, there is an inside corner, and as it comes out just a little bit, there's a route that I was working on. I can't remember the name of that route, but um, it was hard. I don't know, it's like a 512-ish somewhere there, and I was struggling because there's a little bit of an overhang, and I'm not built like some guys that are just like apes, you know, they're just muscle walking around. I'm skinny, and so I don't have all that muscle to do the overhang. So I was working on this one particular route, and I've been trying it multiple times, and you, you go up about 20 feet, and the overhang is, is out about six feet, so you gotta maneuver that, and so your feet are still back on the main wall, and you get out, and then there's a little thin crack that goes up, and you gotta somehow climb up that crack and get your feet up there and climb up. And the particular move is, you have your hands at the edge of the overhang, your feet are back there, and then you reach up with your left hand, and there's a little slot like this. And you have to put your, kind of your left pinky into that slot and hang your entire weight off of your pinky like that. And then as, you, as you're doing that, you bring your right foot up and you put it on the face of the cliff and you kind of pull up with your left hand and your right foot as you're lunging for another hold that's kind of sloping. Not a solid hold, kind of sloping. And with those two holds, you get your other foot up and then you reach up and match and you climb up that way. So that's what I was doing. So my left pinky was in and I was ready to do the, what they call a dino move where you just go for it. I was and then I heard thud. I knew what that was. I'll tell you after my sermon. <laughs> Welcome to Prophecies of Hope. I want to tell you about some upcoming seminar topics to include. This evening, the fall of Babylon, 7 p.m. tonight. It will be right here in this room here. This is a topic every person needs to understand, especially if you're a Christian. This is a topic you need to understand. doesn't matter what denomination, this is something you should know. And even if you're a Christian, this topic affects you right now. You shouldn't miss that tonight at 7 o'clock. In Search of the Bible Church will be here Monday at 7 p.m. Modern Day Prophets will be Wednesday at 7 p.m. Friday, the unpardonable sin. A lot of people have questions about that. What is it? Have I committed it? Questions you should know. How does it happen? Next Saturday morning, we'll be meeting here at 11 o'clock. And next Saturday evening will be the final events of Bible prophecy. That will be our very last seminar to this series. So that is the upcoming topics. Okay, we're talking about the millennium and hell today. We're going to be spending some time in our Bible, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Revelation chapter 20. We're predominantly going to have you stay there, but I ha we'll have some other texts on the screen. Revelation chapter 20. Now, there is a danger that comes with studying the Bible. There's multiple dangers. One of them is if you learn a truth and you don't do it, that's dangerous. The other thing that's dangerous is you take one Bible verse to the exclusion of the rest of the Bible and you hang an entire doctrine on that. That's dangerous. In fact, God has given us the entire Bible and through that word, we can understand what is truth. What is God trying to say on a subject? So when we're studying about the millennium and hell, we're going to look at what the scripture has to say. So there'll be some other scriptures we'll look up related to this. 
Now, I want to review with you a little bit last night's presentation by Josh Rager. Josh, excellent presentation, stand-up presentation, thank you, on the second coming. The second coming is something that's often misunderstood. And for many today, they have an understanding of the second coming that, according to what was presented last night in my understanding of Scripture, that the danger is what they think is Jesus coming will actually be not Jesus. It would be an imposter to Jesus. In fact, it would be Satan himself pretending to be Jesus. Now, what a dangerous position to be in. As a Christian, you're waiting for the second coming of Jesus, and what you think is Jesus, you're so excited, is it? How do you know? What is the second coming? How can you know not to be deceived? Well, we looked last night at some very clear identifying markers about the second coming. You don't have to be deceived. If you trust the Word of God, every word, not just one or two passages, but you look at the total amount on that. Now, when Jesus was with the disciples the last time in Acts chapter 1, the Bible tells us that he was caught up from them in a cloud. And they were just standing there watching, chin up, neck to the world. Some of them had beards, I'm sure, most of them, just staring. And there was two angels there that said, you men, why are you standing here idle? What are you doing? <laughs> well, we're looking to where Jesus just went. And they said, don't worry, just as you've seen him go, he will also come. So what was the manner that they saw Jesus go? He was taken up in clouds. Now don't miss the first word, he was taken up in clouds. There was an actual Jesus. There wasn't a spiritual, ethereal being. Jesus himself, the very one that was with the disciples, is the one that will come back. Not in a spiritual coming, Jesus will come back in a literal way. And he'll come back in the clouds. Now let's look at this text in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself, this is Jesus, he will descend from heaven with a... I'm so glad you said it, but you were very timid. Now when Jesus comes back, it's going to be with a shout, right? In fact, we're going to read just a minute in Jeremiah that it won't simply be a shout. It will describe it as a roar. When the Lord shall roar from on high. Wow, incredible. When he shouts, the dead are going to come out of the ground. When he shouts, your lost loved one will be raised from the tomb. He's going to shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Shouting, trumpeting. It won't be a silent event, will it? Something you can hear, something you can see. And it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Hallelujah. God has a better plan. This world is not the end of God's plan. This world is a messed up place. And when you look around you and you see bad things happen, why do you blame God? It isn't his fault. He's given us free choice. This world is because of sinners and Satan. That's why we see it the way it is. But God has something better for us. Then when we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. So you see it in your mind's eye. Jesus is in the clouds. 
He's actually there. He's going to shout. He's going to blow a trumpet. The graves are going to be torn open. Dead people are going to come out of the graves alive. They're going to ascend up in the clouds. And then we, we are going to go up with them to meet the Lord in the air. Beautiful. Now we're told in Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now don't miss that. Like every time almost that it refers to Jesus coming, it mentions the clouds. Jesus said it in Matthew 24, he'll be coming with the clouds. The disciples were told that in Acts, he's going to come with the clouds. Revelation 1, we just read it in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's going to come in the clouds. Revelation 1, 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now I imagine when Satan comes, he's going to come with smoke and mirrors. But God is going to come, Jesus is going to come with clouds. Don't miss it. And every eye will see him. Now, I've scratched my head over this. We have a round world. Like the people on the bottom of the world. Let me see the other one. Let's, let's be nice. We're on the bottom of the world, and there's people on the on top of the world. And the people on the top of the world can see the sun. But if we're directly on the other side, we can't, right? I don't know how Jesus is going to do this, unless there's few people, or what? But somehow, or maybe it's spinning faster. I don't know. But every eye will see him. There will be no eye that doesn't see him. So if you're hiding in a closet somewhere, don't worry. You're going to see him. If you're sleeping, don't worry. You're going to wake up. You're going to see him. Every single eye will see him. And this, 1 Corinthians 15, we're told at this time, at this moment, this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. See, the Bible describes that only God has immortality. The rest of us are, more, are mortals. We're going to die. We're not going to live forever. God is the only one that lives forever. He gives us immortality and we don't have it at this moment. This moment, the corruption must put on incorruption. Those that are sleeping in Jesus are going to wake out of the tomb and their body is going to become immortal. And the Bible even says how quickly that will happen. In the twinkling of an eye. Now, some are confused about the twinkling of an eye. They think that's what's going to happen in the rapture, and so, so we'll be in heaven in the twinkling of an eye. No, it says that their bodies will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I'll be with glasses one moment, and the next, I won't need them. I have a sore in my left foot that you don't know about. It won't be hurting anymore. Those of you that have different things that you're facing, Maybe disease or cancer or, or, or broken, whatever. At that moment, when the mortal will put on immortality, when the corruption will be done away and you'll be incorruptible, all that is gone. You have a new body. Praise God. The body Jesus is going to give us will last forever. Wow. Wow. That's good news. The older I get, the better it is. So we talked about some significant signs about the second coming. And for those of you that were there last night, I'm going to test you in front of everyone, your memory. So the first most significant sign that will happen at the second coming is it will be literal. It will be an actual Jesus that will come, not a spiritual coming. The second one, visible, we will see him with our eyes. The third, audible, we will hear his shout and the trumpet. It will be glorious. Jesus and all his angels. Heaven will be silent, we're told. And Jesus will come in the clouds of glory with 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. 
What a sight that will be. Amazing. One angel could you know, make people prostrate in front of him. Imagine 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Glorious. And the fifth? Joyful. For most people. For most, actually, not, actually, I think it will be most people at that moment. The majority at that time will likely be those risen from the dead, sleeping in Jesus, joyful. What a day. Now, there's actually two resurrections. Two resurrections. Let's look at this. John 5, 28 says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. That's amazing. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We have two different resurrections. Which one do you want to be in? <laughs> yeah, me too. Resurrection of life. So it's not joyous for everyone because there is a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection for condemnation. Now, Revelation 14 tells us about the last message of mercy given to this world. There's three angels that give this message. After those three angels give their message, behold, the Bible tells us, there is one coming on a, oh, I have it right here. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. Who is on a white cloud? I mean, Jesus, right? He will be coming in the clouds. This is a description of when? The second coming. This is the second coming. And, and on this cloud set, one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. We'll know about that sickle in just a moment. So he's, he's told to thrust his sickle in and reap. So he reaps. And then he's told, reap again. So there's two reapings, right? There's two reapings. So verse 19, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God and blood came out of the winepress. I'll move that one really quickly for little eyes. Now hold on, wait a minute. At the second coming that we just talked about a moment ago, it seemed like a joyous occasion. At that moment, the dead in Christ are raised and then we which are alive are raised up to be with him and and that seems like a joyous occasion, but here we're told that he reaps again and it's pretty bloody. What on earth? There is a second thing that happen when, when happens when Jesus comes. He's coming also as the commander of heaven's armies. Let's look at Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw in heaven, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. This is, the same time frame. This is the second coming. This is Jesus coming as the conquering king as well. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. We know that's Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. When Jesus comes back the second time, he's also making war. Something significant happens. We're told, Revelation 19, 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So all the angels are with him, but they're also coming as soldiers. What does this army do? Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with the flesh. 
at the second coming, there are still those alive on this earth who are not believers in Jesus. In fact, they've received the mark of the beast. And the warning was given in Revelation 14 that if they received the mark of the beast, they would be killed. In fact, they are killed. Those who are not taken up to heaven will be slain at the second coming. Let's look at this text in Jeremiah 25. The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. This is referring to the Lord himself. And he will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of earth even to the other end of the earth. Wow, can you picture that? They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried and they shall become refuse on the ground. So at the second coming of Jesus, it will be joyous for those who are taken to heaven, but those who are alive and remain on this earth and aren't taken up will be slain. It says they will be from one end of earth to the other. They will lay on the ground as refuse. What a dismal scene. This earth is going to be terrible and no one will be alive to see it. The Bible paints a stark picture. In fact, this is how it pictures it in Isaiah 24. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. When is this? This is at the second coming. The Lord makes the earth empty and a waste the land shall be entirely empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. Nothing alive, no human being alive on this planet, scattered all over, the, all over the ground. No one is put in a grave because no one is there to bury them. Stark day. The second coming is filled with hope and also fear. Revelation 20. Let's go here, Revelation 20 and verse one. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain was in his hand. An angel came from heaven and he had a key to this bottomless pit. This key had control over who goes and who comes from the bottomless pit. No one can go there and no one can leave without this key. This one is in charge of the bottomless pit and he has a great chain in his hand. What is this chain going to do? Verse two, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. Now we've studied that very thoroughly about the dragon, the serpent and Satan, right? We, we know about the battle between Christ and Satan in Revelation chapter 12. We know what happened in the Garden of Eden, how Adam and Eve were deceived and this world fell into what it is. We know what this is referring to. And he laid hold on the dragon and bound him a thousand years. Now Satan is a spiritual being. How do you bind a spiritual being with a literal chain? It must be this is also a different kind of chain, a chain of circumstances. We'll look at that a little more here in just a moment. But he bound him a thousand years in verse three and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him. So there he is in this bottomless pit. So this word bottomless pit, almost all translations render that way. In the Greek, 
It's a, it's a different word. I'll show it to you here. Now, I know at least one man in this room that can read that. What does it say? Avusas. Or if we did a transliteration, abusos. Abyss. This bottomless pit is an abyss. Now, it's interesting, that word, abusos, avusos, if you go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and you see where it's translated there, it's very eye-opening and gives direct insight into this text. In fact, when John was writing this, he was familiar with the Old Testament, and this would have come to his mind. Let's look at this. This is in Jeremiah chapter 4. I beheld the earth, and it was indeed without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. It was without form and void. That's that same word, bottomless pit, abusos, without form and void. Now notice what else it says in Jeremiah 4, there was no light. So Jeremiah is describing the earth in a condition that's like a bottomless pit, and there's no light. Now, briefly, we're going to go to Genesis and look at what it says there, and you'll notice it's almost the same exact thing. You ready? And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. That word form, without form and void, is the same word abusos. So the earth is in a condition that's like a bottomless pit. Before God created dry land and air around this world, it was in this wasted condition without form and void. It also says that there was darkness on the face of the deep. So the description that's seen in Revelation chapter 1 where Satan is bound to the bottomless pit is referring to this earth in a condition like before creation. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. Now we're back in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not referring to creation. Jeremiah is in fact referring to the very same time frame in Revelation chapter 20. When these mountains are trembling back and forth, at the second coming of Jesus, the mountains will shake and tremble. There will not be a safe place on this earth. You cannot hide in the mountains. And he goes on, I behold, and lo, there was no man. And all the birds of the heaven were fled. Why was there no man? They'd been slain. They were all dead, scattered upon the ground from one end of heaven to the other, one end of the earth to the other. There was no man. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities were broken down. Now notice that. It says that they were a wilderness. Now that's important for us to note, a wilderness. Tuck that in the back of your mind. The earth is going to be like a wilderness at this time. This is where Satan is placed. It's going to be like a wilderness. Good, I think you got it. At the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. At the presence of the Lord. This is at the second coming. When Christ comes, he will be angry with the inhabitants of the world and they will be destroyed. And this will be like a wilderness. Now, Remember, for those of you that were there, we talked about the Day of Atonement. And remember there was, there was a number of things happening on the Day of Atonement, but in particular there was two goats. Remember? The two goats. One was the Lord's goat, and the other was the scapegoat or Azazel. So we talked about the Lord's goat and how the Lord's goat was killed. And that blood was used to cleanse the sanctuary because it had become polluted. 
Why had it become polluted? We noticed in Leviticus 16, verse 16, it was polluted because of the sins of the children of Israel. Their sins had polluted it. And so the Lord's goat was used to cleanse it and to make atonement for all the sins that had been put there. And then we stopped. We didn't examine that any further. But that, that those sins were then taken by the priest himself. And he bore those sins in himself, and he went out, and we're told that he placed his hands on the scapegoat. Now, I want to show you a verse that talks about just before he places his hands on the scapegoat. You ready? And when he has made an end of atoning, sins were already forgiven. The sanctuary was, it was cleansed, being cleansed. The atonement was finished. The Lord's goat represented Jesus. Jesus' work of cleansing and forgiving. But now all that work of forgiving and cleansing is done. Now it is finished according to Leviticus 16.20. And then the priest goes out and he does something else. Let's look at it. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confessing it over, all the, over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel. So when Aaron did that, was anyone being forgiven because of that act? No. Was there any cleansing of the sanctuary because of that act? No. That is all done. So this does not represent Jesus, who died for us and forgave us. This represents another individual, an individual that in some sense is guilty of all the sins that have ever been committed. Can you think of any being in the entire universe that has ever tempted every single person? In fact, the scripture says he's deceived the whole world. Can you think of any being who's ultimately guilty for every wicked thing that's ever happened? Why is he guilty? Because he's the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. Why, why are all these sins being placed on that being? Satan, Lucifer himself? Because he's responsible for them. He's being held accountable for them. They need to be placed where they originated. And he put them on the head of the goat. And then notice this. Notice this. This was, this, it might not send chills up your spine, but it sends chills up my spine. All right? We've been reading, now we've been reading in, in, in Revelation 20 about the bottomless pit. And the earth is going to be without form and void. We read in Jeremiah it's going to be like a wilderness, right? Okay, ready? Now watch what happens to this goat. You ready? No one's ready. How about now? Yes, okay. I saw a hand, good, okay. And shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man you got it that goat representing not jesus but satan the originator of all sin is sent away into the wilderness wow this is a prophecy before revelation like you don't even need revelation you just read leviticus same thing this is talking about satan who's going to be sent into the wilderness now watch this the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to to what uninhabited land why is it uninhabited because everyone is dead and he shall release the goat in the wilderness uninhabited land wilderness the connection is clear on the day of atonement this must be the end of the day of atonement in revelation chapter 20 over and all the guilt is now placed on the originator of that, and he is placed in this barren land. There isn't anyone alive to tempt, to deceive, 
In fact, let's go back here to Revelation 20 and verse three. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more. He can't deceive them, why? Because they're not alive, yes. Till the thousand years should be fulfilled. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He can't tempt them now because they're dead, but something must happen at the end of a thousand years where he can deceive them again. And it goes on, and after that he must be loosed a little season. So we can know that after the thousand years, Satan is going to be loosed for a little season to do what? Let's skip down to verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. So after the thousand years will be this releasing, another resurrection. In fact, look at verse 5. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection happens when Jesus comes. That's the one you want to be a part of. The second resurrection happens after the thousand years. That's when the wicked are raised again. Now, it says Satan is bound to this earth. Now, you remember in the book of Job, we studied Job, how Job was visiting somewhere. There was a heavenly council. And Job showed up there. Let's look at this. Job 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Huh? What did I say? Thank you. My brain is spinning somewhere. I think most of you got that. So there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and I said, Job? Oh my, thank you. And Satan also among them. Now, Job and Satan are not in the same camp. Job is a follower of God. Satan, definitely not. So Satan was there, and Satan came into God's presence to make accusations about God. You are just protecting Job because you're giving him so many things, and that's why he serves you. And so he had that freedom. Now, one shows up with a key and a chain. And Satan is now locked to this barren earth. He can no longer fly back and forth to heaven. He's locked here with no one to tempt, nothing but his own thoughts. Have you ever wanted to be free from your thoughts? They're just driving you nuts? Just feeling pressed down? Well, one day Satan is going to have to face that himself. He won't be able to think about anything else but what he's done to you and you and you. And he'll have to, with his own face, think about everything and where it's brought him. Here's the thing. When you and I read now in Revelation 20, we're reading about something that's going to happen in the future. Someday, Satan will be sitting on a rock with his hand on his chin thinking about what is happening. We know the end of the story. When Satan gets to the end of the story, he's going to have to say, everything God said was true. I tried to fight against God. How could I do that? Everything God said is true. We even know beyond this, how can Satan fight against God? I don't know. How can we fight against God? I don't know. How can you fight against God? We know the end of the story. If we know the end of the story, 
why don't we do what the Savior of the story tells us? To place our faith and life in Him. Now, it's told that this is going to happen for a specified period of time. Now, I need someone to tell me how long that is that is under the age of 12. Raise your hand. I see a hand. Okay, how long is it? A thousand years. Excellent. Which is where we get the word millennium. So this is mentioned in verse 2 and in verse 3 and verse 5 and 7. It's going to be this period of a thousand years. So here we have it. A thousand years. Now, a period of time is useless without knowing when it begins and when it ends. Now, we know when it's going to begin and end. We have those landmarks. The first resurrection, the second coming is when it will begin. And at the end of that thousand years will be a second resurrection. Now, let's review here about the different events that will happen at the first resurrection, at the beginning of the thousand years. Number one is up on your screen. The second coming of Christ. I gave you a, a head start. Now, we've already walked through some of the other things. What else is going to happen at the second coming of Christ? There's going to be a resurrection of those, not everyone, but just those that are sleeping in Jesus Christ. Number two, the li- number three, the living saints will be caught up together with them. Then what happens? See how effective my teaching was. I failed completely. That's it. I'm starting from the beginning. Just kidding. What happens? The Lord is a roar from heaven. He's told to get his sickle out. He gets it out and then he gets it out again. What happens? I heard it. I heard it. I heard it. One person. The wicked dead are slain. And they're on the ground from one end of earth to the other. Laying there. And no one is buried because... No one can bury them on the top of the ground. The earth is desolate. The mountains are shaking. It's a terrifying time. All right, good. Wicked living are slain. And then the last thing that happens? I heard something about Satan. Satan is bound. Yes, okay, good, excellent. You guys get a C plus. C plus. Some of you get an F, sorry, F. Don't grade me. Okay, let's go back to Revelation 20, verse 8. 20, verse 8. And Satan is going to go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog were people that were fighting against God. These were the wicked. To gather them together to the battle, the number of them is as the sand of the sea. So wait a minute. After the second resurrection... After the thousand years, there's going to be a resurrection. All the wicked are going to be raised, and Satan is going to be now free to go out and deceive them, and he's going to tell them, let's go and fight. Now, you think his fighting would be done. He's had a thousand years to think about this. Let's go and fight. And it gives us the exact amount of people, not one more, not one less, whose number is as the sand of the sea. This is everyone that's ever been born that's wicked. That's a lot of people, as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and they compassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Pause. Wait a minute. They're going to go try to take over the beloved city. What city? The earth is desolate. 
No one is buried. It's just bones at this point. Even that has probably turned to sand itself. What city is here, a beloved city? Now, this is where you should note. In Revelation 20 and 21, not everything is, sequ- is sequential. There's some things that are kind of mixed in there a little bit. And so we're going, to, we're going to jump down to 21 and verse 2, and we're told about this beloved city. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So John sees the city that was in heaven, now it comes down. Zechariah 14 describes the scene where Jesus comes down and his feet touch the Mount of Olives and it splits and it makes a huge plain and the new Jerusalem comes and it lands there in that location. That's the scene. The whole earth is now surrounding the new Jerusalem and wants to destroy it. But before we go see about what happens next, we forgot something along the way. In our excitement about seeing what happened to Satan, we left some people. What happened to those who were taken up to the cloud? What were they doing for a thousand years? Now it should be noticed right here. There was not a time of peace on this earth. There are many that think there's gonna be a thousand years of peace on this earth. In our reading today, did you think, see anything peaceful about a world full of dead people with mountains falling apart? There will not be a time of peace here. But it says that the saints are going to be somewhere for a thousand years, and then they're going to come back in this city to this earth. So what are they doing for a thousand years? Let's look at that. Let's go back a few verses to number verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. What were they given? What were they given? One solitary voice crying aloud in the wilderness. Thank you, solitary voice. They were given judgment. Judgment. They were given judgment. What? I thought a judgment already happened. I mean, we studied the judgment together, you remember? In the first judgment, there's an investigative judgment that happens before the second coming. We know that because when Jesus comes back, he brings his reward with him, and he must need to know who is going to receive a reward that is determined ahead of time. In fact, we studied that even further, and we were shocked to find out that the only ones that come up in the first judgment are those whose names are in the book of life. In fact, only those people who have claimed to follow Jesus will be in the first judgment. If your name is not in the book of life, you don't even come up in the first judgment because you're automatically relegated to the second judgment. So the first judgment. So these these saints have already been judged. So it can't be them. Who else could it be? What about, what about the angels in heaven? Maybe they're being judged. No, it, it can't be them because they never sinned. Who's left? We have two groups. We have the wicked angels, Satan and his host, and we have the wicked people, 
that have perished. These are the ones that are to be judged. When are they being judged according to this? Well, there's a judgment that happens then, but they're also judged later. There's different phases of the judgment. Now, this judgment, the saints are a part of. They're a part of this judgment. How are they a part of it? In fact, we aren't the only ones to discover this news. Paul tells us about this in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When will that be, Paul? He also says this, do you not know that we shall judge angels? So the saints are going to judge the world and they're going to judge angels. Now this judgment will be happening at a time when all the wicked are dead. There's a judgment happening. They're not even alive to say anything. Wow, interesting. What is this judgment all about? What is going on? Well, you remember God has books. And in these books it has, well, there's three books. Oh, here's a great time for another test. Great. All right, we talked about three books. Anyone just give me one of the names of one of the books? The Book of Life. Okay? The Book of Remembrance. Good. In the Book of Remembrance, it talks about our tears are in his book. The good things that we've done were in the Book of Remembrance. And a Book of Record. Now, the Book of Life is probably my favorite because I want my name there. You know how to have your name there, right? place our life and trust in Jesus who died for us and our name is written in heaven, we're told. Not complicated, very simple. Everyone in this room, if you hear my voice, you can do it. And if you don't hear my voice, we can sign language it, you know? I know someone that does sign language back there. Um, so the book of remembrance and the book of record, that's my least favorite book. In fact, there's probably more written in me in that book than any of you have written in there. The book of record indicates all the wicked things you've done. Now, God doesn't have this record so that we can balance our good deeds against our bad deeds and see which weighs more. No, this record is to demonstrate God's transparency in the process so that if there's any person that wonders, was God fair, they can look and see that. We know that God does this for our benefit because he knows everything. It's not like he has to go look at the books. We also know that God does this for our benefit because when we study the judgment, we noticed that when Abraham was told that God was gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God told Abraham that for a reason. He wanted Abraham to be satisfied in his mind that when God destroyed someone, he didn't make a mistake. Abraham was given the benefit of talking with God to make sure it was fair and right. How do I know that? Right here, Genesis 18, 25. Abraham actually said this to God. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham would have wondered this if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah without talking to him first. At the end of time, before God destroys the wicked, we are given a chance to see the records. And when my mom gets there, and she looks, well, Chris Anderson. Chris is not here in heaven. I hope that's not true. Chris is not here in heaven. I, I thought Chris loved Jesus. And she, and she goes and she says, God, why is Chris, are you sure you didn't make a mistake? I mean, after all, it was my son. 
Yes, Virginia, I know it was your son, and you're a very nice lady, but please, just come. Look at the books. The book of record. You see, Chris, you see, Virginia, Chris's name is right here, and under here, um, there was things in Chris's life that he loved more than me. He loved these things more than life eternal. And you see, the blood of Jesus isn't covering those because he never gave them to me to cover. Heavy. The book of record will be there for a thousand years so your mind can be satisfied. God was just. God was fair. Yes, Virginia will say, with tears streaming down her face, you're right. Nothing more you could have done. You did everything you could to reach that man. Shall not the God of all the earth do right? We're given a chance to know. And in fact, you remember when the apostle Paul, who was once called Saul, was standing there and the deacon Stephen was stoned. Do you remember that? The last thing Stephen remembers is Saul watching him being stoned. Now just imagine Stephen's surprise. On the cloudy ascent to heaven, when he walks by uh, Chris, Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hey, nice to meet you. All right, okay. And he comes over, and here is Saul, the man that was giving permission for him to be stoned. Don't you think he's going to wonder, God, did you make a mistake? <laughs> Are you sure you got the right one? Um, maybe some of those that picked up stones to throw at him that crushed out his life, maybe they'll be in the cloud because they found forgiveness in Jesus. Who knows? Don't you think there'll be questions in our mind? Does God just do away with our mind? No, no. He wants us to know in our mind this, that God is just. And in fact, Revelation 15 tells us this. There's a group of people in heaven on the sea of glass. They stand there and they say this. Are you ready? Let me try again. There's a group of people on a sea of glass they have been reflecting on God and his fairness, and they say this. Are you ready? Yes. yes, okay, here it is. Just and true are your ways, O king of the saints. Now, you're gonna say that someday. Let's just go ahead and practice it together. You ready? I'm gonna come out here with you. Ready? Just and true are your ways, O king of saints. You will say that someday when you're standing on the sea of glass. Do you know why you'll say it? Because you believe it. You believe that God is just and true. You've been able to examine the record for not a short period of time, 10 years or 100 years or 500 years. For a thousand years, you'll be given the opportunity to examine God. And at the end, you will say, just and true are your ways, O king of saints. But not just the righteous will agree with that. In fact, God will even give opportunity for the wicked to agree with that. Let's look at Revelation 20 and verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place therein, no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell were delivered up 
delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. At the second resurrection, all the wicked will be raised out of the ground. They are going to stand before the throne of God, and the books will be opened, and the book of life, and they will be able to look at their own life. They won't, be having, they won't have time to examine your life and every other life, but they will be able to look at their life in clear, distinct lines. Let's see. Over here, the book of, okay. Uh, B, 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 C. Ah, C, 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 C. Chris, Chris, okay, right here, Chris. Chris Anderson, okay, that's me. Hmm, book of record, book of record. Oh, wow, it's true. Everything in that book is true. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, it's so embarrassing. I hope no one else reads that. <laughs> Everything, stark relief. They will see it. And then we're told this is what they will say. You ready? Oh, oh come on. Are you ready? Okay. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Why will they do it? Because they're having a sword over their head? No, they died once. Because they'll see that God is just and true and their condemnation is fair. I think it's reasonable. God is fair and transparent. No one will wonder at the end of time, was he fair? So we come to this moment in Revelation 20 and verse 9. The city is there. The wicked are gathered around the city. Satan is there. They're thinking they're going to take over the city. And then it tells us, fire came down from heaven, from God out of heaven, and devoured them. So this brings us to this question is what about hell? What about hell? Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we want to know about that, we can trust Jesus' word on it. What did you say? So Jesus says this in Matthew 5.30, and if your right hand offends you, cut it off cast it from you for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not your whole body should be cast into hell whole body into hell the scriptures and Jesus do not teach that there's some spiritual part of you a soul disembodied spirit that's floating in some hell somewhere that's being burned Jesus says your whole body will be cast into hell now, Jesus believed and taught in an actual hell. This is a real event. So when will this be? Now, I want you to look at this, and I want you to look at it in your Bible. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 13, but keep your finger in Revelation. Don't lose that. We're going back to Revelation 20 in just a minute. Matthew 13 and verse 36. I hear pages turning, and I, I hear digital pages turning. I am reading this out of the King James Version. If you have a different translation, that is fine. It will say something like age instead of what I'm going to say. Verse 36, 
Then Jesus sent the multitude away. I'm in Matthew 13, verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So Jesus had told this parable, and they didn't understand it. And they were too embarrassed to ask Jesus what it meant in front of everyone else because they were spiritual. But they didn't know, just like everyone else. So when they were gone, Jesus, tell us, what did it mean? What did it mean? So here he opens it, verse 37. And he answered them and said, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Okay, so we've got a number of things going on here. We've got um, the Son of Man. We have the world. We have good seed. And then we have the tares, which are the children of the wicked one, or Satan. So we have these different elements, right? We have the Son of Man, and we have these, uh, the good children and the wicked ones. And then we have the, verse 39. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. Doesn't this sound like what we've been talking about already? Good children, bad children, son of man, the devil, a harvest, a sickle. We see these, this judgment happening. And the reapers are the angels. The angels slaying. The angels taking to heaven the, re, the resurrected ones. Verse 40. And as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. This is the wicked ones. The wicked ones are burned in the fire. So shall it be when? In the end of the world. Some of your translation will say the end of the age. I think world makes more sense because it's the end of this world or the end of the age of this world. Verse 41, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those which do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears? Did you hear? When is this casting forth into fire? At the end of the world. So we can know this for sure, that the end of the world, when this happens, is after the thousand years. Would you agree? It's after. The, so we can know that if Jesus was to come back today, it would be a thousand years before hellfire would begin. Would you agree? Thousand years away. But it is an event that's going to happen. Now, 2 Peter 2.9 tells us this. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Have you experienced that in your life? The power of God over temptation? The gospel we believe is not just an idea. There is power that can help us when we're tempted. Are you ever tempted? There's power for you. And God knows how to deliver you. Hallelujah. And to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. To be what? To be punished. The Lord knows how to help you out of temptation and he also knows how to reserve you for punishment. Now we read about what that punishment is, right? Burning in fire. Pretty solemn. When is this going to be? The day of judgment. 
there will be a day of judgment. Now, there's different judgments and different phases of those judgments. This would have to be after the thousand years. So how does God reserve them to keep them, to hold them until the day of judgment? If you were at our Wednesday night presentation, you would know this without this next verse. But I have a suspicion that one of you wasn't there. 2 Peter 2.9. Do you not know that the wicked is reserved to the day of, to the day of what? Destruction. Destruction. Hmm, okay. Keep that word in mind. They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. Who shall declare his way to his face? And who shall repay him what he has done? Who's going to hold him accountable? Yet he should be brought to the grave and shall remain in the tomb. He's going to remain where? In some place underground burning. No, in the tomb. And he's going to be reserved. He's going to be kept there all the way to the judgment. That's right. So let's look at the key words. Reserved to the day of judgment, uh, day of ju- uh, uh, destruction, the day of wrath, remain in the tomb. That's how God reserves people. Now, I promised you, I would tell you the temperature of hell. How many people are in hell? Are you ready? I... <laughs> Good. Somebody cares about hell. (laughs) All right. I took this as a screenshot on my phone at 6.01 this morning. And you'll be interested to know that it was freezing in hell. Are you ready? There it is. 28 degrees freezing in hell. In fact, that only gives clarity when you know what it's like in paradise. I'll tell you what paradise is like. This was the temperature of paradise this morning at 6.01 today. In fact, if you were driving somewhere in this United States, you would see this sign. If you were wanting to head to hell, you would know which way to turn at this intersection. In fact, if you go onto Google, you will find Hell, Michigan is there, and it gives you the population. There's 15 people that live in Hell, Michigan. So if anyone ever tells you to go to, you'll know where to go. So, 2 Peter 3, verse 7 says, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. What is God going to use to destroy this earth with with fire? The heavens and the earth that now exist store it up. So, I was recently flying over near Indonesia, and we passed this mountain, and out of the top was this smoke coming out. Must be a volcano, right? In the earth, there is a lot of heat stored up. This earth is going to be the place where hell will be, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction at the ungodly. Until, at that time, the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This world, this earth, is going to become an inferno of fire, burning, I don't want to be a part of that. So let's continue. So we have the first resurrection and second resurrection. Second resurrection is where the judgment will happen and the wicked are then slain. So let's look at Revelation 20. Let's go back to Revelation 20. And verse 9. 
And they went up in the breadth of the earth and passed the camp of the saints about in a beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and hell and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And then 21 and verse 8, but the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So how long is this fire of God going to be burning? Throughout ceaseless ages? While we're sitting there listening to the screams? No, it sounds terrible. Number one, it can't be ceaseless ages for multiple reasons, but I'm going to give you three. The first one, the Bible tells us that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. How can he do that if it's still burning? It will have to stop burning. The second reason is, would it be fair for God to burn people in hell forever? At some point, the punishment must reach its, must pay for the crime. If two people are being punished by fire and one burns the same amount of time as the other, but one did a lot of wickedness in their life and one only did one thing, would it be fair to punish them the same? Your sense of justice would say, no, there must be an amount of punishment that's equal to them because God will give punish everyone according to their works. Each one will pay according to what they have done. God is fair. We've seen that throughout. He will punish fairly. So there must be a point of time in which it ceases. And I would have to think that Satan's would have the longest punishment because he's ultimately responsible for not only his bad deeds, but everyone he's tempted. And number three, man is not immortal. God alone is immortal. We're told this in 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it can't be that murderers have eternal life and they're burning forever. It must be that their punishment ceases. In fact, we're told in Romans 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is? No, you read it wrong. You went too quickly. Read my Bible. Just kidding. For the wages of sin is? Death. Death. So if that's the wages, if that's what you earn for sinning, then the sinners, the wicked that are destroyed, must receive death. They're punished with fire, but at some point they must die. In fact, this goes on to say, excuse me, John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. How can it be that the wicked are told you won't perish, you're just going to be tormented forever? In fact, we're told that if you believe in Jesus, you will have everlasting life. It cannot be that the wicked are burned in hell forever and ever. Now, there's a text I want you to see. It's in Psalms 37. Hold your finger in Revelation. Go to Psalms 37. Let this text stay with you. Put a little bookmark there. 37, verse 9. Thirty-seven, verse nine. Verse nine. For the evil doers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord they shall 
inherit the earth. So if they're going to inherit the earth, that must mean the evildoers are no longer there. They're cut off. Verse 10, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yes, though you search diligently, you shall consider his place, and it shall not be. They shall not exist. Consider where the wicked were. They're not there anymore. Where are they? Verse 20, But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into the smoke. They shall consume away. The scriptures clearly teach that the wicked will perish. Only the redeemed will have eternal life. Revelation 20, verse 9. You kept your finger there. I know, right? Flip back there since you kept your finger there. Those of you with digital versions, versions do not have that same ability unless you have a back arrow. Revelation 20 and verse 9. There's a significant word that's used here. And fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. Devoured them. They perished like smoke going away. Malachi 4 says this, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. Hmm. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. They will be burned up. There will be no root nor branch. They will be gone. I lived in Zambia, Africa, for a bit, and while there, they don't have backhoes and bulldozers like we have here. They have picks and shovels and muscles. In fact, when you see the guys walking around, it's hot. They don't wear a shirt. And when they walk, their muscles ripple and bulge. So I, I look at my, you know, when I'm alone and not outside, you know, and hiding in my closet, and I look at my muscles. Like, some of the muscles they have, I don't even have on my body. Like, there's not even that muscle there. Like, how? These guys are just like ripped. So they come out, you know, picks and shovels, working, digging. I mean, they're just amazing. Uh, strong, strong people. Um, but I learned something about getting rid of a stump. I know another man in this congregation that knows about getting rid of stumps. But they, they would build a fire on top of the stump with coals. And the coals and the stump was dry by this time. And the coals would just smolder, smolder, smolder. And you'd come back a few days later and amazing, those coals would have caught the stump on, and it made more coals, and it burned down the stump, down the, the tr out to the branches, to the, to the, I don't know what you call them, roots, to the very end of those things. Every little spot was burned up. It was amazing. Gone. Nothing there but a hole in the ground for snakes to hide in. That's what's going to happen here. They will be burned. They will neither be roots nor branch. They will be completely gone. In fact, let's go to the next verse. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing as wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. We're going to explore that verse another day. Verse 3, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. They shall be ashes ashes they're going to be burned up they're going to be destroyed they're going to perish because they will be there no longer obadiah makes this super clear he says for the day of the lord is near upon all the heathen 
the day of the Lord. This is referring to the second coming. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down. What will they be drinking? We're told what they will drink in Revelation 14. They will drink from the wrath of God. There will come a time when God will pour out his wrath without mercy. And it will be in this day. They will be destroyed, fire from God. And they shall be as though they had not been. They will perish. They will turn to ashes. They will not be there anymore. God will not be burning them throughout ceaseless ages of eternity. They will perish. Now some of you are thinking, wait a minute, Mr. Anderson. I know there's a Bible text somewhere. Let me see. What does it say? It says something about, well, it says something different. I'm sure it does. I'm not sure what, but it's there. You're right. There are some texts that people get hung up on, misunderstanding. Let's look at one of those. Matthew 25 and verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Whoa, Chris. Did you read that? Go back and read it. You see what it says? Everlasting punishment. Well, let's let it say what it does say. It doesn't say everlasting punishing. It says punishment, something that comes to completion. In fact, there is another Bible text that is a parallel to this one. It says virtually the same thing. Let's try to understand what that word punishment is meaning. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know God. When is this? After the thousand years, at the destruction of the wicked, when fire comes down from God out of heaven, when there's fire on this earth that destroys the wicked, that is when this flaming fire is. On them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know when this is. It says, who will be punished with everlasting what? What? With everlasting, they're going to be punished with everlasting, hmm, what is this? burnings, torment? It's going to torment them with everlasting torment? What does it say? I'm going to ask the question. Are you ready? Yes. yes, okay. With everlasting destruction. The everlasting punishment is everlasting destruction. They're going to be destroyed. They won't be there anymore. They will be ashes under your feet. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. They will be destroyed away from God's presence. They will no, no longer be in existence. Okay, Revelation 21 and verse 8 says this. But the fearful and unbelieving, the abom abominable and murderers, the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, and all liars. It says all liars. Now some of you feel like it's a white lie is okay. But here it says all liars. So be careful about your white lies. All liars are going to receive this. They shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The word of God itself says that they will die. There will be no more living. They will die. So Chris, we read earlier that it's going to be eternal fire. What is this eternal fire? I mean, if they burn up, why is the fire eternal? Well, Jude 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of those words, eternal fire. So is Sodom and Gomorrah 
still burning. 2 Peter 2.6, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. No, it's not burning anymore. They were condemned to destruction. And they are an example to those who afterwards should live ungodly. If you live ungodly, you'll be destroyed by eternal fire. So why is it called eternal fire? Well, the Bible tells us that God is eternal. It says in Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Fire from God, the eternal God, has its name as the eternal fire. That fire has eternal consequences. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed eternally. The wicked at the end of time will be destroyed eternally. The result of that is eternal. Now, I want to look at this last little element here, Revelation 20, verse 10. It says, They shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, Chris, sorry, man. It says they're going to be tormented forever and ever. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's easy to, to look at another language and think you understand it until, until you live there. So I visited South Africa, and they speak Afrikaner, Afrikaans, and they have different words for things. Uh, like the front of a car is the bonnet. I'm, I'm looking at some South Africans in here thinking, am I saying it right? And the back of the car, car is the boot. And a pickup truck is a baki. And a semi-truck is a lorry. And, and so they have different names. But there was, one, there was two words I learned that, were, that was kind of, kind of funny. Um, the word baya and the word donkey. You put them together. Baya, donkey. Help me out. Baya, donkey. What does it mean? Baya, donkey. Thank you. Thank you. So if I said baya, donkey, you're thinking one thing. But if I said it to someone that was an Afrikaner, they would be thinking another. When you look at the scriptures written by a Hebrew person, an Israelite, written in Greek, translated into English, and it says forever and ever, you think you know what it means. Aha! Forever. It can't mean anything else. What do you say about that? Well, I would say that whenever we're looking at a bunch of scriptures and they're all very clear, when we come to a hard part, we should say, well, that's hard. Let's look at the other scriptures and let's compare what the rest of scripture has to say. So let's look at that word forever, how it's used in other parts of scripture. Fair enough? Jonah 2 verse 6. Jonah said, I went down to the moorings of the mountain with its bars the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Now this is Jonah saying this after he was cast into the sea. And he was down in the bottom of the sea there. Can't remember if this was before or after he was swallowed by the big fish. Um, and he says, the earth with its bars was closed behind me forever. Now, was Jonah in the belly of the fish? Was he at the bottom of the ocean forever? No. That's a word, it's a, he's using that to describe a long time, at least what felt like a long time, and it, he was there until it was completed. That word forever means until it is completed. The earth with its bars was closed behind me forever. In fact, in this exact same verse, he goes on to clarify, you have brought, you, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He was no longer down there. You have brought me up. 
I was down there forever, but now I've been brought up. There's another text in Exodus 12 that says this. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Now this feast is the feast of unleavened bread, Exodus 12. God said you shall keep it as a feast throughout your generations. In fact, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now there's some people that are confused today about feasts and are still keeping them. But in fact, we are no longer to keep the feasts. The feast stopped. So this forever here means that you're to keep the feasts until their time has come to, to cease, to finish. At the cross, the whole ceremonial system stopped. Now we begin the reality of what those things meant. If you have contention with me about the feasts, please come talk to me later. I would love to talk to you about this. But this word, as a statute forever, I bet virtually no one in this room keeps the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You say, well, that's passed away. It was nailed to the cross. You are correct. That forever meant you keep it as long as you're to keep it until it finishes. There's another one, Exodus 21. Then his master, there's someone that wants to be a slave to their master forever. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master will take his ear and will put it against the doorpost and he's gonna take an awl and he's gonna put it against his ear and he's gonna take a large hammer or something and smash that awl so it pierces his ear. How many of you think that sounds like fun? I wanna be a slave. Yeah, okay, take me, yeah. Um, and he shall be his slave forever. Now at some point, that slave is going to die. He would only be his slave until he could no longer be. So we read this text in verse uh, Revelation 20. It says, they shall be tormented day and night until it's completed, until it's finished, until it's reached the end of what it's doing. But some of you are saying, Chris, it doesn't really matter. Like, like God just burned someone. Is that, is that loving? Is it fair? Is it loving? Well, the Bible describes God is love. In fact, this is love. On two different accounts, it's love. I've got a long driveway. Bushes kind of grow over it, trees, whatever. And at night, it's really dark. We don't really walk up there alone at night. There's coyotes and weird people that walk up and down our road. But if I was out there one evening and, and one of my daughters was getting beat up on by some strange person, would it be loving for me to stop it? Would it be loving for me to say, eh, and just keep walking? No. I would, for me to be loving, I would have to, oh, my sleeve, what are you doing? I would have to stop it. Sin, if it is not stopped, will destroy the entire universe. In fact, sin will go so far that it would destroy God himself. At first, that sounds kind of shocking, but if you just think, Satan destroy who? Sin will annihilate this entire universe. If God is love, he must he must stop it. In 1973, in Michigan, there was an outbreak of something. They didn't know what it was, but cows were dying everywhere. And in Michigan, you don't mess with someone's plate and you don't mess with their cow. And the cows were dying. They didn't know what was going on. 
They were having stillbirths. Milk production was dropping off. That's bad. And so, there was one man that tried to figure out what it was, and he searched and studied, and he came up. He found out it was this. It, it took him 11 months, and he found it, it was polybrominated biphenyl, PBB. It was a fire retardant, which had been mixed in with a cattle feed, and it caused this outbreak. And they tried to figure out and stop what was going on, but they, they, couldn't, they couldn't stop it. It kept spreading and spreading. And the only way to deal with this was to kill all the cattle. 30,000 cows, one and a half million poultry, thousands of hogs and sheep killed. Some of the farmers were weeping. This disease, if not stopped, would be devastating to everyone. It had to stop. We are facing a disease of drastic proportions called sin. Your life has been affected by it. You've had family members that have died. You've faced unimaginable things in your life. It's because of sin. Because God is love, he says, no, I must stop this. Love does destroy. Revelation 21 verse 1 tells us, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Wow. Imagine. Being inside the city, the terrible time of fire and destruction, it ceases, all that's left is ashes, and God creates a new heaven and new earth. In fact, Adam and Eve never saw God create a single thing. Adam was created after everything else except for his bride. When his bride was created, he was sleeping. Eve didn't see herself created. They saw nothing, zero, nothing created. But after the thousand years, after the destruction, you can stand at the edge of the wall and watch God create a new heaven and a new earth. You won't have to take it by faith. You can take it by sight. Second Peter says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein, uh, in which righteousness dwells. Are you looking forward to that? Now, this next text I'm going to show you says something about two different aspects of God. Sometimes we like to think about one aspect to the exclusion of the other. He says this, Consider the goodness and severity of God. Now, I love thinking about his goodness, his mercy, his gentleness, his kindness, his tenderness. But there's another aspect of God called severity. It's a real part of who he is. He is God. You can't put him in a box. He is love. But his love causes him to be severe at times. And Peter tells us this about this aspect of God, his severity. He says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. Now class, when is it these things will be dissolved? Before or after the thousand years? After the thousand years. Very good. I'm going to now give you an A. Good. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? considering what is going to happen, what should you be in holy conduct and godliness? 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. There's two words in here I want you to focus on. Since and because. Since and because. Since they will be dissolved and because they are, will be dissolved. Peter is using this to cause our mind to think about us. Since the world is going to be dissolved and because the world is going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In thinking about the severity of God, there is an element of truth here. Who wants to be destroyed? Who wants to be outside of the city? Not me. Not me. What should that do to motivate me? It should cause me to run to the arms of Jesus. There is help in him. But there's another aspect of God that should motivate us, that should pull us, that should draw us to be holy in our conduct. What is that? Romans 2.4. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. What, what is it in your life that motivates you? Is it the things of this world? Or is it Jesus nailed to a cross, broken and bleeding? And life gets busy, I get it. We all get involved with you know, this and that and running the kids to soccer and violin lessons and piano lessons and vacuuming the house and oh, I gotta get groceries this evening and uh, oh, so many things, so many things. But what is the one thing that should never be out of your mind? The love that God has given for you and the nearness of his return. It's even at the doors. Any moment, Jesus could come back. That thousand years could begin. Almost we are there. Keep it in our minds. The love of God should motivate us, urge us to become holy in conduct, right? So a quick review. The second coming. At the second coming, there's going to be some significant events that are going to happen. Number one, there is going to be a shout, and it will be loud and literal, and it will be seen, and Jesus will come in the clouds, and he will shout. He will roar out of Zion at this roaring, at this shouting, at the trumpet, like lightning from the east to the west. All the holy angels are there. We're going to behold him in all his glory. I think I just bumped something. The graves are going to be torn open. The mountains will be shaking. People will be afraid. What is going on? The dead in Christ will come out of the ground and they'll go up to Jesus in the clouds. Then we which are alive and remain, we're going to be caught up to be together with them and forever we'll be with them. At this time, these old bodies are going to be made new. This mortal is going to put on immortality. My glasses will be gone. I hate these things. My foot won't hurt anymore. The cancer that we have, the aches and the pains, the sorrow, this will all be gone. We will be there together with Jesus, this joyful occasion, but at this time, it will not be joyful for some. With terror and fear, they will recognize Jesus was not loved in their life as much as this world, and they will see that was so stupid. Why? But they made their choice 
There isn't a second chance at this moment. They have made their decision in the light of day and now they've come to meet reality and the angels of God march out as an army and the wicked are slain from one end of the earth to the other and they lay upon the ground and no one buries them because no one is alive to do it. The ground is waste. Satan is left to sit and think for a thousand years in this wilderness. He's led there by the hand of a fit man and he's thinking thinking, thinking. He's captive. He can't go anywhere. He's captive. No one to deceive. During this time, the saints are in heaven. There's a judgment where they're examining the books in heaven, and they're wondering, why is, are they not here, and why is he here? I don't understand. And at the end of it all, they say, just and true are your ways, O God. Their mind is satisfied that God's decision was right. Surely the judge of all the earth will do right. The wicked are then raised after a thousand years. Satan goes out among them and inspires them. Let's do it, guys. We can look at all of us, as many as the sand of the sea. Let's go up. And they surround the Jerusalem city that had come down and the plain was split and they surrounded the city to take it over. And at that time, the white throne judgment begins and they all stand there with chin up, mouth open, eyes looking forward at the books that are open. They see the book of life their name is not there. They see the book of record. Oh my, please just look at your own name, thank you. Don't look at that one. <laughs> oh my, everyone knows the thoughts, the words, the action on display. And in the end they say, as much as I want to deceive myself, God could have done nothing more to save me. I admit, their knees bow, their words say, Just and true are your ways, O oh God. Fire comes down from heaven. The earth splits open. Fire consumes all of the wicked. They burn for whatever their judgment is until they have been punished. They've been tormented fairly. At the end, they are ashes. They become dust. At the edge of the wall, the saints have tears streaming to their eyes. We're told in Revelation 21 that God will wipe the tears from their eyes. I would weep if one of my children was not inside that wall. I'm sure there'll be weeping because there are those who could have been there, but they loved the things of this world more. God will wipe the tears from our eyes. At some moment, God will step forth in some way. I don't even know how. The scripture doesn't say, but it will says that he will create a new heaven and a new earth. Six days? And on the seventh we rest? Because in Isaiah 66, we're told that, that we're going to worship with God from one Sabbath to another. I don't know, but I want to be there to see it. Don't you? God is fair. God is just. God is worthy.